Hello, welcome back to Strictly Money, where finance and your prosperity meet. I'm Sejal Patel. There are important tax changes coming in 2024, tax changes that all Canadians need to be aware of. The federal tax bracket, TFSA limit, and CPP contributions are all going up thanks to inflation. Now, it's welcome news for anyone who wants to keep more money in their pocket, but it does beg the question, is Canada's tax system truly set up to create prosperity for its people and its economy? You are going to love my guest for today's show. Jeffrey Turner is a tax lawyer at Davies, and he's also a tax professor at the University of Toronto. They discuss policy issues like why do we tax capital gains? Should we have a wealth tax? And are taxes too progressive? He is a wealth of knowledge and all around just a great guy. Hi, Jeff. Appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on Strictly Money. Well, thanks a lot, Chazelle. I'm Happy to be here. Delighted to talk about income taxes. Income taxes. I know. I know it's boring for some, but you know, there is some welcome news. And I, I think, um, Jeff, a lot of people do understand that the federal tax rates and, and benefits are indexed to inflation. We heard from the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, that said that um, for 2024, they're using the inflation rate of 4.7%. Can you just run through anything that you noticed? I mean, obviously, there's the change in the federal rate. Uh, there is CPP's benefits are going up. The TFSA room is going up. Maybe we can start with the TFSA. Sure thing. And I would also note that this 4.7% indexing factor, it's astonishingly high, right? We're not accustomed to that. We've had this period of relatively tame inflation. Indexing hasn't in recent history been very much of a factor in our income tax system. But of course, uh, in very recent years, we've had much more pronounced inflation. And that 4.7% figure, it's a lagged number, right? It's based on the CPI as at uh, September 30th, most recently. And so it reflects the period of what was exceptionally high fl inflation compared to what we've recently had. So for many Canadians, this is going to be quite an adjustment to the changes to all of the various rate brackets and, uh, and thresholds that you've mentioned. To me, one of the most significant significant changes is in the TFSA uh, maximum contribution room, right? It's being bumped up finally to $7,000, which, you know, doesn't sound like very much, but cumulatively, uh, an adult Canadian who's enjoyed the benefits of all of the cumulative TFSA room, that's bringing the aggregate room up to $95,000 over a person's lifetime. So the TFSA is beginning to be a much more significant savings vehicle for Canadians and at 7,000 maximum yearly, and that's going to hopefully continue to increase in future years. I think for financial planners like yourself and, and others, the TFSA is going to become a much more significant savings vehicle. Yeah, I can tell you, Jeff, you know, most people that I speak to, they they prefer the TFSA over RSPs just because they like the, the flexibility. And, and I think a lot of people are worried that they're going to just have to pay higher taxes when they retire. So Th that's right. And RSPs, so the contribution limit there annually, 31500 or so, that also is a much more significant um, amount, right? It's a much more substantial amount. It's always, it's capped at 18% of the person's earned income for the prior year. But at 31500 or so, that's uh, also a very significant way to for people to accumulate savings. And of course, uh, people get the tax deduction for contributions to an RSP. So that's a big change as well, I would say. Yeah, I was going to say, Jeff, anything you noticed with the federal 
tax rate changes? Well, so again, uh, the tax brackets for personal income taxes, of course, are all indexed to inflation. And so there are some fairly substantial changes. Again, at 4.7%, each rate bracket increases. So the first rate bracket at 15% federally is now up to about 55900 or so. So right, the first 55900 or so of income 2024 and onwards is taxed at that lowest marginal tax rate federally. And of course, then we add in the corresponding provincial rates, depending on where the person lives. So that's a lot more income that people can earn still taxed relatively lightly under our highly progressive system. I mean, the rates escalate uh, and, you know, we get up to now um, a top marginal tax bracket at the 246,000 income threshold. So that's substantially higher than the 200,000 when the the current government implemented their substantial personal income tax rate increases in 2015, effective for 2016. But this is the question. At $246,000 or so, is that Canadian rich? Does that Canadian warrant being subject to the top marginal tax rate in Ontario when you add in Ontario provincial income taxes as well, 53.5%. So any income an Ontario resident earns over and above that now increased top threshold of 246000 taxed at 53.5%. That's, to me, um, a very high marginal tax rate. It is. And it, and it goes back to your point, um, Jeff, because you mentioned this, like the progressive part, right? There's a lot of political fodder. It's um, tax the rich more. And I want to get your thoughts. Is that fair? Now, to someone who's making 75000 or $100,000, you are going to say, oh, well, someone who's making 250000 well, they're rich. I'm not sure that's the case. I mean, that's my personal opinion, not the way we're going with our economy and, you know, rising housing prices and, and so on. But I want to get your thoughts. Are we too progressive? And, and what are the consequences? of that. So uh, excellent question. And of course, uh, I've been saying for years and my colleagues, yes, we are too progressive. Progressive income tax rates are important. Canadians accept that's an important, that redistribution that's achieved through our income tax system is a very important feature of our society. And it, it helps people who are less well off and people should contribute to tax revenues in accordance with their ability to pay. And we measure that by their income level. So there's, there's no question that a progressive income tax system is morally just and, and proper and, and defensible. But I believe that this government has taken it to a bit of an extreme. You'll recall when they were elected, they jacked up the top marginal tax rate to hit the, where it is now. And where we have marginal tax rates exceeding 50%, like we do in nearly all provinces, the government takes more than half of each extra dollar that people earn after their income hits that top threshold of now 246000 or whatever. And there's something psychological. I was just going to say, the fact that you have to hand over more than you make, right? It's it's that 50% number. And then once you go above that, it just, it just feels wrong. <laughs> and and it, it rubs many people the wrong way. So it is true, not all Canadians are subject to that top marginal tax rate, of course. But those who are, they're the entrepreneurs in our society. They're the, the high-performing income earners. They're the ones who are earning a lot of money. They're generating wealth. And they're very sensitive, many of them, to that top marginal rate of taxation. And so when 
top marginal tax rates start bumping up to where they have been for the last uh, eight years, it encourages people to engage in avoidance behavior. And avoidance behavior can include entering into, you know, tax structures and tax shelters in order to do whatever is possible within the law to reduce the tax burden. It can extend to just choosing not to work extra hours or choosing not to take a promotion or just choosing to coast a little bit. The high marginal tax rates inhibit the entrepreneurial spirit that we need to foster in our country. And then in addition, high marginal tax rates lead, and we've had this problem in Canada forever, the brain drain problem, right? Many people look around the rest of the world. It's a competitive market economy. And if you see that you can work just as hard in some other country and be subject to a less punitive tax burden, a lot of people in that income bracket are highly mobile and are able to move themselves or will be attracted or enticed to opportunities that they may have in other countries. So the brain drain, right? We lose at least some of our best and brightest people, usually to the United States because that's our neighbor, their economy is highly integrated with ours, and their taxation rates, of course, are substantially lower than ours. The tax burden is just that much lighter. There's pros and cons. That means you don't live in Canada anymore. You live in another country. And so, but people make their own choices about that. My point is our high marginal tax rates, excessively torqued, encourage all of those kinds of avoidance behaviors. You know, Jeff, there's a lot of people who would say, well, we need to pay higher taxes because we don't want the US system. We want free healthcare. That's probably the biggest issue I think that comes up. You know, we don't like the way the US is going. What are your thoughts? Do we even have to be like the U.S.? Well, first of all, there is a great deal of unanimity, I would argue, in the country in favor of maintaining our public health care system, in favor of maintaining our public education system, right? We have very good quality schools that are publicly funded, universities very largely publicly funded. All of these features of our society that we have chosen to invest in and suffer higher tax burdens as a result to fund it all, all of those things help produce equality of opportunity for people, right? So the whole idea that I think is widely accepted in Canada is that taxation and redistribution in order to fund programs that promote equality of opportunity are justifiable. Those are things that we are willing to do. And other countries have chosen, made different social contract decisions. The United States does not fund their universities to the same extent, their public education, their healthcare system to the same extent. They have a lower tax burden as a result, but they maybe promote equality of opportunity less than a country like ours do or many of the European countries. So I think that there is an acceptance of that. But have we gone too far? I think that's the question uh, at hand. Have we gone too far with funding more than just programs that promote equality of opportunity to arrive more at equality of outcome programs, right? Redistribution that just takes money from those who are earning high incomes and paying very high taxes and then just redistributing it wholesale uh, to, to people. We do want income supports for people who are unlucky in life or who are just unable to earn incomes for themselves to be self-sufficient and and accountable to themselves. Um, So nobody's saying, nobody is suggesting cut all of those social programs and the income supports, but have we gone too far by torquing the progressivity? 
That is the question. And I think part of the issue too is, is we know that the government needs revenue. I mean, I don't think anybody's arguing that, right? That government needs revenue. They have to, like you said, they have to fund social programs. They have to fund hospitals and education. I guess the big disagreement comes in, how do they get it and how do they use it? And, you know, often I get into conversations of saying, well, you know, we need more money here. And then on the other side says, well, where's the money coming from? Because we're in debt. Yeah. And then the, the back argument is, well, if they didn't waste that money or they used it a certain way, maybe we wouldn't be in this situation. So it's, it, it feels very complicated. Yep. And just by way of background, just to benchmark where we stand as a nation. So the OECD puts out these fantastic, reliable statistics every year. They've been doing it for decades. And they're comparing the many, many different statistical attributes. But the key one relevant to this is the tax to GDP ratio in all of the OECD countries. And so the higher the tax to GDP ratio, that implies that the tax burden that people bear on the income that they're producing, that in aggregate is the GDP. The higher that ratio, the more tax burden there is, and it's an indication of the the presence of the government in an economy. So the OECD average tax to GDP ratio in the most recent years available, something like 34%. And Canada is right in the middle of the pack, right? There's a bunch of countries like Canada that are clustered there. So we're very average in terms of the overall tax burden. There are countries like a lot of the Scandinavian or France, like European countries that have chosen to have higher tax burdens in order to offer, you know, more highly redistributive social programs. And there are other countries and the United States is the best example that have instead chosen and not to have as high a tax burden and to have fewer social programs, and they tolerate greater inequality as a result. So in that spectrum, we're right in the middle. So it's not really fair to claim that Canada is a high tax burden country because there are others that are you know, at higher. Um, but uh, to your point, how does the country raise the tax revenues? Canada, in contrast to many of our OECD countries, peers relies much more heavily on the income tax system, our personal income taxes and corporate income taxes. Like those taxes, income taxes generate the lion's share of government tax revenues. And we rely much less than our OECD peers on consumption taxes. So that the GST GST and excise taxes, other countries, and especially in Europe, have much higher levels of VAT, which is equivalent to our GST. And that structural tax revenue issue for Canada, that's a problem because income taxes are widely regarded as amongst the least efficient taxes. They discourage the generation of income, right? And we have very high marginal tax rates on individuals, and that feeds the very high levels of income tax revenues that we generate. So one big picture improvement that we could consider making is shifting the tax base from income, which we rely on so heavily now, and instead rely a little bit more heavily on consumption taxes like the GST. Do you think that that would backfire? And and I think about that one too, only because when you look at, and, and we're not in this situation, Jeff, in Canada, but when I look at the US, for example, 70% of their consumption is tied to GDP. To me, that's a very high number. I think it's a dangerous number. I don't think we're as bad here in Canada. But then I wonder that, again, the unintended consequences of raising that, what would it do to the economy if they don't spend, if people don't go to restaurants? And 
And of course, you've pointed out that, I mean, the U.S. is our neighbor, our economic competitor, and they do not have a national VAT or GST equivalent. So that's a constraint on what we can do in Canada. If our peers, like we're, we're European countries, and they generally have higher VATs, we'd have a little bit of an easier time making that more efficient tax shift to lower the income tax burden, raise the consumption tax burden just a little bit. We are constrained with the United States as our neighbor not doing that. And then you've, you've also raised the question, like, is it even politically possible to do that? I mean, the the Harper government last uh, time uh, in, in office reduced the GST, and that was wildly popular. People don't like the GST because it's in your face every single time you purchase a good or service. And, and that's one of its advantages. It's highly transparent, so everybody's aware of it, and there's political pressure not to you know, over-rely on taxes like that. And yet, what ideally I, I would see us do is explicitly shift the tax burden, have income tax reductions that everybody could see, right? That's the key. And then make the revenue gap by increasing GST so that people could see that it's revenue neutral, right? So that we're substituting a more efficient GST tax for a less efficient income tax. Whether that would fly in Canada, I don't know. I think it would have to be explained. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yes, it would. Oh, Jeff, so much more to uncover. We're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. So we'll be right back. Are you looking to enhance the level of cash flow from your investments? BMO ETFs has you covered with their Covered Call ETFs. These ETFs generate cash flow from two sources, the dividend yield from the underlying securities and the premium generated from selling the call options. BMO Covered Call ETFs strike a balance between generating cash flow and participating in the growth of rising markets with your experienced portfolio management team and effective strategy with over 10 years of history. BMO ETFs is the largest covered call ETF provider in Canada, covering 13 covered call ETFs across a range of strategies across regions, countries, and sectors. Visit BMOETFs.com to learn more. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Welcome back. I'm here with Jeffrey Turner, and we've been talking about the Canada's tax system. Jeffrey, we've been talking about the, our tax system, and you know, you've made the argument that we're too progressive with our taxes. I want to get into this a little bit more because, as someone who spends a lot of time financially educating and seeing the financial challenges that so many Canadians have, the wealth gap at least from where I sit, is growing. And it was even exasperated, I think, during the pandemic. So it feels like at least the middle class is getting squeezed more and more. What are your thoughts? Well, okay, so that's interesting. The perception of a wealth gap, and that's really a perception of the level of inequality in our society, by inequality of wealth and also inequality of income. Now, first, I'm not going to dispute that ordinary Canadians are suffering, and i.e., in terms of the lack of affordability, their incomes haven't been keeping pace with the you know increase in price levels in the economy, and you know our income per person GDP 
per capita has stagnated, and that's attributable to productivity and so on. So I don't dispute that whatsoever. There's other solutions for that. But this notion that somehow the struggles of the Canadian middle class is due to an increase in inequality such that there's an unfairness because you know the rich are earning more than the lion's share, that I think is highly contestable. And again, I referenced some OECD statistics earlier. There's another one that the OECD has been keeping track of, the Gini coefficient. And the Gini coefficient is a measure of inequality. It measures income inequality, not wealth inequality. So it's, you know, targeted at that. And it's imperfect in many ways. But the idea is that a country that has perfect equality, where every single citizen is earning exactly the same amount of income, the Gini coefficient would be zero. And a perfectly unequal society where one person earns all of the income and nobody else earns anything, that would be a one, a 1.0 score. And so guess where Canada fits on that scale? 0.28 in the most recent OECD release. And that puts us near the bottom for inequality, i.e. we are amongst the most equal societies amongst the OECD. Uh, There are several others like um, uh, uh, the Scandinavian countries, those ones that have the higher tax burden and more highly redistributive uh, social programs. But Canada, according to the Gini coefficient as measured statistically and, and consistently over time by the OECD, does not suffer a very high degree of inequality of incomes. Now, there's a couple of nuances to that. The pre-tax income level and and Gini coefficient for Canada is a lot higher. So if you just look at pre-tax salaries and incomes amongst Canadians, yes, you would conclude that our Gini coefficient and inequality is more like the UK and the United States. They're at about 0.37, 0.35, where we're way way down at 0.28. But what we have in Canada are these social programs that effectively redistribute a very substantial amount of that income from the higher income earners to the lower income earners and people who who need it to supplement their incomes. And so that 0.28 measure of inequality of incomes is after the tax system has done its work to redistribute income from the rich to the poor, in effect. And so what that tells us is that our social programs are working. They are very, very effective at reducing or mitigating that income inequality. So that's the good thing about having such a highly progressive income tax system. It's doing the work of mitigating inequality. So that's good. And other countries like the U.S. you know, have chosen not to do do that work through their income tax system. But your perception of growing inequality is a common one, and yet it's not borne out by the OECD's Gini coefficient measurement that takes into account the social programs that redistribute. So I would contest that inequality is growing in Canada. I don't know, but anecdotally, maybe you see a lot of clients who are high, but we all have our views about whether it's appropriate. But statistically, I don't I don't think it can be allowed to stand that we are a highly unequal society with growing inequality. See, and that's why we have these conversations, right? Because it, our perception and how we feel and data can be different. Well, and I think the perception, it is true that many Canadians are are suffering in the sense that their incomes aren't growing and they're Yeah, and they haven't for a They're having time. trouble, they're struggling to keep up their standard of living while the price levels have been increasing at a much more rapid rate than they were historically and their incomes haven't been keeping up. That's the problem. That's not inequality. That's just an overall economic 
stagnation, essentially. That and and you see, I would contend that one of the reasons Canada has been suffering this stagnation that's masked by the very high levels of immigration that we've, and it's all very good. It's good for our economy to have high levels of immigration and it expands our labor force. It increases the nominal size of our economy, but then income per person on a larger base because of the expanding population, that's what's stagnated. So people's real standards of living as measured by their real incomes per person, not increase fast enough. And that is in part due to the high levels of taxation that we impose and the way that we, our tax system and our corporate tax system applied to business income in particular, how it has the effect of, of stifling uh, investment decisions and, and entrepreneurialism. Yeah. And that's, I want to get into that because you, you mentioned the productivity. Um, we are not the most productive nation. <laughs> we have a G7. huge productivity problem. We do. And do you think that is directly tied to the way we are taxed? So in part, there are many reasons for it. Productivity ultimately is a consequence of the amount of income that's produced by the labor force based upon the um, existing capital stock. And the higher the capital stock, the more business investment there is, the more ability for workers to be more productive, to generate more income with the same amount of time that they work. In order to increase our productivity, we need to increase the capital stock and business investment. And and just from the perspective of small businesses, it's investment in computers and applying, you know, AI innovations to their business and just making each worker more productive. And that takes capital investment for businesses. And often that's very risky and the payoff is long term. And to a far too high degree, that investment by businesses is stifled or inhibited by, in part, our tax system. It's not just that. Um, we need to foster more innovation in our country. We seem to rely mostly on, you know, U.S. innovation, which, of course, is the most dynamic economy. They're producing the, you know, the great advances in AI and software development and, and so on. We need more of that to happen in Canada. But I do contend that our high levels of income taxation stifle business investment, and that in turn leads to our low productivity levels. Yeah, I have to agree. You know, I have this conversation quite a bit with, with a lot of people, Jeffrey, and, you know, I say we have talent here. We're, we're highly educated. We have so much going for us. And, and unfortunately, I think we look too much to the South, you know, and saying, oh, but they're doing this. And I said, but we have everything here. And my personal view is, is just, it's the red tape. It's the burden, the tax burden, and probably a lot of just bureaucracy that is stopping us from really accelerating. So I agree with you. It's not just our high tax burden. It's these sort of intangible features that stifle and inhibit business investment, like red tape, as, as we often describe it. Excessive regulation and restrictions on business activity, often intended for you know great purposes. Uh, but we have had eight years of a government that takes a view of the role of government as very activist and very intrusive into our economy, where there's this sense that the government needs to control everything and, and has placed so many limits. We've just seen, for example, the EV restrictions, right? Telling auto manufacturers that 
you know, what you sell must be comprised entirely of electric vehicles by 2035. That type of, I mean, we, that has a good purpose. It's to reduce emissions in our economy from the transport sector. But it's just another example of the intrusive level or presence of government in our economy. If we want to have a rip-roaring economy, we need to encourage entrepreneurialism and sort of loosen the shackles a little bit. That's why, you know, a conservative government has a different view of the role of government in society. It's sort of more government should be there for the most minimal purposes as possible to raise the income to fund those critical social programs to fund, you know, national defense and so on. We've gone far beyond that uh, in in recent eight years. And it's sort of time to peel that back just a little bit, at least. It also goes hand in hand with what we were talking about earlier with the levels of personal income taxation. So that's personal, that's to individuals, but many of our individuals are the entrepreneurs that are running these businesses. And if we could rescale the progressivity of our, of our income tax system as it applies to individuals, to maybe flatten the curve just a little bit so that the higher marginal rates apply, maybe be at larger income thresholds than they do now, more comparable to the U.S. And if we just sort of tried to dial back the overall burden of taxation in our economy and tried to, as you've pointed out, unshackle businesses with less punitive regulations and restrictions, the whole point is to nurture that entrepreneurialism and and business investment, improve labor productivity, increase incomes overall, and to me, that's the ultimate solution for the struggling middle class. It's to raise their incomes, raise their prosperity. Those are the paths to those longer term solutions, in my view. Yeah. And I think it's it's going to take courage and it's going to take... Um you know, I think the right regulations, right? Because I'm more capitalist by heart, but I don't say capitalism is perfect. And we've seen it, you know, with with competition, frankly, I don't know if we have enough of it. Um, And I think a lot of people's concern is, well, great, let's give corporations more money, except that it doesn't come back to the individual, it goes to the shareholder, or it goes to, you know, the CEO and the executive team. So it's going to take the right regulation. And I, like I said, courage to make sure that there is that balance. Would you agree? I do agree. It's going to take courage. The whole idea is to elect a government that has a, a slightly more humble view of the role of government in our economy, a less activist government that tries to control so many aspects of our lives and that tries to manipulate um, commercial decisions. Going back to our income tax system, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the current government uses our income tax system as a tool of social engineering, basically. I mean, we have some recent examples with the share buyback tax. I mean, that was targeted ostensibly at giving corporations an incentive not to, you know, have normal course issuer bids and buy back their shares, uh, as opposed to the other uses of capital for dividends or reinvestment in their businesses. Why should the government be telling businesses through a punitive tax charge how they should deploy their capital? I mean, it's just fundamentally wrong. Or even just targeting banks, you know, Targeting banks in a discriminatory way with that extra. So now banks are subject to this additional 1.5% corporate and why banks? Why not other why companies? Banks? So yeah. it's, a, it's financial institutions. There's no point for government to intervene. Our corporate income tax should be non discriminatory 
regulatory and let let all sectors of the economy compete and earn as much profit as they are able to. So that's another example. The underused housing tax, right? That that's a using the tax system to discourage non-residents from holding their homes vacant. Well, there are better tools if that's even the problem to cause of our uh, housing crisis. Better tools because the government's given far too little regard to the consequences of all these new bespoke tax instruments. It's the complexity of complying with it, the burden of complying. And and we all want a simpler overall tax system. But when you have a government that keeps layering on all of these specific tax, discriminatory tax measures in an effort to influence behavior, it's the opposite of simplicity. It leads to more complex complexity. And the compliance burden is not insignificant. And, and that just, that's the red tape that we're sort of objecting to. That's what it is. So we just need to have a government that steps back from using the tax system as a as a social engineering tool, as an instrument of social policy, and restore the tax system to a much more neutral uh, sort of system that applies in a non-discriminatory way, like it used to, and where the role of our tax system is to raise revenues in a fair and non-discriminatory neutral way, so that we have the government has the revenues to spend on the valuable social programs that Canadians value. Yeah, so let's grow the pie. Let's not let's just grow the pie. Play That's political right. football and move the money around or slosh it around, but actually grow the pie for everybody. The solution to all these problems, the current government will try to spend more money, and to do that, they're borrowing it from future generations. Right? We don't even have them. We're running deficits for the last eight years, and projected to continue running deficits. There just isn't enough money without borrowing it, and that just pushes the costs onto future generations, which is completely unfair to them. They don't have a say. Very tough. Oh, Jeff, I could, we could talk forever. I'm going to have to have you back another time because there's just so much more to, to discuss. But Jeff, before I let you go, I do these three rapid round questions that I ask my guests. So uh, are you ready for this? Well, I guess so. Try me. <laughs> <laughs> really, really easy questions. Um, what is the best financial advice you've ever received? Oh, okay. I'm afraid it's going to be rather boring, but it was my parents who nurtured in me and my siblings this notion of minimizing debt, right? Like debt is good if you're buying an investment or if to buy a house, right? That's the one sort of personal um, investment uh, where debt is sort of essential, but to pay it back as quickly as possible and to minimize and don't borrow was the advice I got for, you know, to buy your car or to take a vacation consumption. Because they depreciate. Uh, the car value. depreciates. That's not an investment that's uh, that can justify borrowing. And so that was the advice given to me. And I've done my best with the helpful support of my wife to limit our borrowing and borrowing for investment, paying it back as soon as possible. So I've lived that my entire life. So that's the, we tried to avoid because Canadians are so highly indebted, right? Uh, statistically, we're, you know, what is it? hundred that the debt level is 180% of our income level. Like we are statistically very highly indebted. I don't think everybody's following that advice. No, no, but that's a good one. It's one that I certainly impart to the, those I teach. What is the worst financial advice that you've received? Well, okay. So it goes back a ways. You might recall in the 
early 2000s, a sort of tech boom, there was a um, excitement about hydrogen, the hydrogen fuel cells. This is like over 20 years ago. And I was advised to invest in hydrogen companies. And so I I deviated from my typical practices and I, I did make some investments at, on the advice of some uh, others, uh, experts. And, you know, they all went bankrupt and lost pretty much everything. And it was a good lesson. I didn't lose very much, um, but it was a good lesson to avoid faddish investments. And so I've stayed out of cryptocurrency. I've stayed out of the cannabis uh, stocks. And I mean, I don't really, I haven't ever really traded very much. I've um, generally been kind of boring in, in my investment practices, but to- Boring is good. Boring is good. Boring Slow is and good steady. And the way I teach it is, you know, if you want to take that kind of risk, like you did, compartmentalize, I, I comp- right? And, I, and it didn't work out. Like and I've avoided those kinds of faddish investments ever since. Okay. Last question. If there was one tax policy change you can enact that would help people who are struggling with their financial security, what would it be? So if I were minister of finance and I had the power to just make it so, you know what I would probably, coming full circle, we talked about the TFSAs at the very beginning and how excited we are that the annual contribution limit is now $7,000. So how about increasing that contribution limit much more substantially because for lower income people, the TFSA is actually arguably, it's a better vehicle for lower income people because it's far more flexible. First of all, yes, you don't get a deduction for your contributions. If you're lower income, um, you don't get much value from the deduction anyway. And there's the flexibility of withdrawals because you can recontribute your withdrawals in a subsequent year to the TFSA. So for lower income people who we want to encourage to save and not just for retirement long term like the RRSP encourages, but to save. But it can be for any goal. For anything, to buy a house, to go back to school, to do anything, to renovate. A TUFSA is the ideal vehicle and especially so for you know lower income middle class Canadians. So I think I'd be inclined to make TUFSA plans much more generous and and have larger limits. So how's that? Yeah, I I love that one because I think we need to do whatever we can to help people save for retirement because it is the one, you know, it's the one part of a financial goal that too many people are putting off. I think they know they need to do it, but as we say, life gets in the way and other goals and, you know, it's something down the road, but it's, it's not easy to save for a 25, 30 year retirement. And the government should be encouraging people to save. I mean, that is our policy. We have the the RSP, the TFSA, now the First Home Savings Account Plan, which is fantastic for the smaller targeted group, younger people who haven't bought a home yet. But the prime, the core savings plan, I think, could be the TFSA because it's just more relevant to a wider group of Canadians. Jeffrey, always appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on today. I've enjoyed this very much, Sajal. I really appreciate the opportunity. I have too. And I know our viewers and listeners will as well. Jeffrey Turner of Davies. Well, that wraps up this show. If you want actionable, unbiased tips, be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube. And you can also find us on Apple Podcasts. I want to wish you and your loved ones a very happy and prosperous 2024. Thank you for your support. It means the world to me. We'll see you back here next week.